Welcome back to another impactful night An impact your education leadership This is episode 194 Your host ID3 Fires at Drone Thirst Tonight's panelists are Blade Thorn Plus Social Change Agent Pro Blade Thorn Please hello to the people Good evening everybody And uh, again I love being on this podcast And I love being on with Dr. Larry Absolutely And legendary Dr. Larry Davis Please say hello again To the people sir Hello Looking forward to being On this show And uh, agreeing If they show up And Dr. Drone You always have Some interesting Interesting commentary That I look forward To collecting uh, And then with that With no further ado uh, Mr. Eric Robson Please say hello To the people sir Yes So thank you so much For, for inviting me This is my first uh, experience on this wonderful podcast uh, and I uh, look forward to it not being my last but we're looking forward to um, learning more from you know both the impact of educational learning um, Mr. Davis, Mr. Thornton, Mr. Carrier Mr. Green of course about the drone uh, thanks so much for having me oh it's going to be it's going to be something else tonight well the topic of the night is politicizing education and the funding impact now for me, when I came up with this topic, I saw a movement in this topic, especially what was going on in society today. You got school choice, you got the vouchers, you have social economic development, you got social mobility, but that's just me. That's little on me. Let me go around the panel. What was your first thoughts when you got the topic for the night? Who wants to go first? Well, I'm going to jump right in since, uh, since I'm, the, I'm the new kid on the block here. You know, it's, it's really, I think, a really important title, um, politicization, politicizing education, and uh, the funding impact. It really, really is an important, it's an important title, uh, which really uh, intrigued me. I don't have any particular expertise, so I'm going to be looking to really hear from the panel for the most part, but I can certainly offer some insight and some perspective based upon my current and past experience in schools and how those schools have allocated those funding for services and programs such as my own. Thank you for that, sir. Who's next? I'll jump right in there. Uh, uh, I appreciate what Mr. Robinson said. And for me, it's more about when you uh, gave me this topic, I was thinking, you know, when the entire body moves upward, we still end up with the same statistics. It doesn't matter how high you move the entire group, there's still always going to be a bottom 20% and who actually occupies the bottom 20% is usually a result of some type of political uh, program or some type of policy that uh, drags people back down into the bottom 20% even if the bottom 20% would be an acceptable place uh, economically, it still makes people feel as if they're less than, and that creates a huge problem. So, uh, and it's, and it is tied to funding. So yes, we will get into that topic. Always rich. I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine really quickly. Uh, whenever you politicize anything, we're talking about, making it cultural and when we say culture it's something like cultural icons iconic pop culture and that takes away from the realization of what it actually is whenever we politicize anything we take away from the severity of what that issue is look at racism once it became politicized 
it lost it, it, it's losing its emphasis. And we know that that's not racism against blacks, that's a crime against humanity. So this is a crime against our children when we politicize education. And so I, I think we have to talk about school budgets. We, I think that's crucial. That's a crucial conversation we got to have tonight. I think we got to also talk about uh, uh, site-based decision-making because those are the people that help build those school uh, budgets. I'm talking about those school leaders that's involved, those, those committee members, even the school site directors. Even teachers, even uh, the, the grade level or, or departmental chairs that, that chair those meetings, the secretaries that take the notes, that take the minutes, and, and the students, right? And those community members, those, those partnerships. Let me throw this question out there. The panel's open. What mindset do site-based decision-making committees need to keep in mind during this this wave of where politicizing education I want I want to I want to stay on on script I want to stay on the course but what are some ways that they're gonna have to navigate around the, the politics of education to make sure that allocations that they receive meet the needs of the students. Now watch this, especially those students in our public schools. The panel's open, what's your thoughts? Well, a, a private school doesn't have to yield the site-based decision-making committee because that's a, a private agenda, that's a private curriculum. They don't have to, they don't face the same things that we do when it comes to funding, federal funding, local funding, state funding. But I will say this, the site-based decision-making committee, in theory, is a great idea because it gives you an opportunity to individualize and campuslize what you're doing as far as put up for your kids. You're doing something for the kids on your campus. That site-based decision-making committee is not talking, they're not talking about any other campus in the district. They're talking about their own specific campus. However, they are very limited in their authority and their power because everything they passed had to go back up the chain, go back to the board, back to the superintendent. And most of the things they talk about, most of the things they want to fund and bring to the campus, never happen. So in theory, great idea. In practice, flawed. Oh, that was good. Who's next? The most important thing about site-based thinking is who actually gets to make the final decision? Who, instead of the uh, the gatekeepers, instead of the people who are boots on the ground, who actually gets to dictate, yeah, that's a great idea, but no, we're not gonna do that. The biggest flaw in site-based uh, economics for schools is that people are afraid to sacrifice their sacred cows. We need to redefine what's necessary in a school campus uh, and for the students and strictly to benefit the students and not to keep elevating the sacred cows and then we need maybe we need to relabel the sacred cows into something else but most of the time they get served and everything else gets thrown in the ash heap oh it's getting good it's getting good well well the panel's still open what's, what's your thoughts yeah I'll, I'll offer some some insight i don't have 
a lot of experience, but I can speak to your point about the mindset. And I think that that's a really important point that you brought up because let's assume that the funding is based on certain mandates. There's a um, outline of expectations, a certain student population, a student framework in which they have to adhere to and deciding and allocating what those and where those funds are going to go to, how it's going to be spent. Let's assume that there may have been some prior precedent in the allocation of that funding to include that precedence to include some outcomes of its overall effectiveness or its, its appropriateness for that student population. I think it's going to be, it will be important on a mindset standpoint to observe and to recognize um, what has been effective, how those dollars are being spent, is it meeting what those objectives are and adhering closely to that? And if not, then there needs to be a return back to an evaluation and assessment of the effectiveness of the phone. You just don't want to continue or lose that insight or lose that perspective in terms of meeting the needs of that target student population. Now, see, I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up stats because statistically speaking, over the last 50 years, public school funds have been on the decrease. They've been on the decline. Okay. And so let me, let me, let me, if you're taking notes on this podcast, because I'm about to ask a, a I'm about to ask a serious question to Dr. Larry Davis, but before I do, I want you to write down these 10 things that there are 10 steps to budgeting success when it comes to education. The first thing is determining the allotment. Number two is to identify fixed expenditures. Number three is to involve all stakeholders. Number four, identify potential expenditures. Number five, deal with and talk about cut back. Number six, avoid continued debts. Number seven, develop a plan. This may be a campus improvement plan, but it's a plan. Number eight, set goals and manage time efficiently and effectively. Number nine, evaluate the budget. And finally, number 10, abide by the budget that you set. With that being said, Dr. Larry Davis, my question for you is, why are public schools underfunded in the United States? You know, buddy, when you were young, your parents tell you, don't hang out with people who get you in trouble, who keep getting you in trouble, right? Dr. Drone, no, I consult with these school districts, but yet he asks me these questions that he knows I'm going to answer and it's going to get me in trouble. So here we go. <laughs> I'm sorry. Here, here's, here's, here's the reality. The reality is we don't understand, we don't value, and we don't 
cherish the future. And if we don't value, cherish, and understand that thing, how can we invest in the people who will be in the future, our children? So we don't value our children. Let me give you a good example. When we think about the future here in Texas, and I'm not going to name the school, but when this school was built, and it's probably one of the most gorgeous schools here in, in Allen, Texas, but uh, it's a beautiful school. And when they built it, they said it was the most wired, connected school for the Internet. A year after it was built, we had Wi-Fi. We just waste hundreds of thousands of dollars putting in all these drop connections in a building that is now useless. So we don't understand the future, and we invest our money incorrectly. Next thing is this right here. H&R Block, did a, uh, uh, the H&R Block Commission did a, a survey, and it, it found out that 84% of what students learn in school they never use. 84% of what students learn in school they never use. The average American uses about 37% of the info used in school. And we're talking about signing checks, simple math. So if we're not teaching what needs to be taught, if we're not funding based on the needs of the kids, which is going to be in the future as well, how do they know how to fund it? They can't fund it. Next of all, we, we talked about it. Once you politicize education, it becomes a pawn in a chess game. And clearly it can't be the king or the queen because it gets moved around. And when you start moving a pawn around, the person who has the hand on the pawn controls the narrative. And when they control the narrative, they can change the way people hear the problem exists. Not the way it really exists, but the way they want, it to, want, want to describe it to the public. Now, lastly, I don't want to go on too long because I know this is a, a topic that may open up a lot of doors, but why is education politicized? In most states, we elect the school board. And if you elect the school board, that means that person was running off a certain agenda or off a certain principle. That means that school board is going to then hire a superintendent who meets their agenda, who will help them achieve their agenda. So that whole process is political to begin with. So if it's political at the top, it has no other authority, no other chance but to be political at the bottom. And unfortunately, our children are the, the people who suffer. Education needs a champion. Our children deserve one. And the way it is now, it's not happening. You, now, you know that was fire. And, and I hope that doesn't get you in trouble. But I know that it helped. It definitely helped this podcast. No, and it helped the people that are listening as well. The panel's still open. Who wants to take that? I'm going to jump right in there. Uh, Dr. Larry is absolutely correct. One of the biggest problems, uh, which I'll address when I answer my question that you're going to ask me, is that they are not looking at the future because even from an economic standpoint, even if the hard right was looking at the economic standpoint, every dollar that you would actually properly invest in the children would reduce the number of people who need to be in government programs and would benefit the economy by giving us more educated and more functional adults in the long run. They won't do that because they don't see far enough to see that these people have the capacity to be functioning adults. And they believe that there are tons and tons of throwaway kids. And that's the biggest problem with it being politicized. You guys are dangerous. Who's, who's next? 
I will, I will add to that. I will, I will also say, and again, this is good to come from my role as the founder of Together for Success, and it's always room for optimism. Let me kind of offer some perspectives in that regard, you know, based upon, you know, the comments of Dr. Larry, uh, Larry Davis, uh, uh, Mr. Green, and uh, Mr. Thornton. There's always room for optimism. The work that I have done, and we have done as an organization, and I have mentioned previously that we are currently now in three public schools and two private schools. And not too much private, but they're charter schools. And the response that we have gotten from increased parent involvement, and what I mean by increased parent involvement, we're talking about parents and teachers working closely together, um, allocating time after work hours, approximately one hour to about an hour and a half, every evening working together, um, reducing those barriers, engaging in open communication, enjoying fun activities, which ultimately has that positive effect and impact on that student and on that child. Every group that I facilitate, every group that my staff facilitates, continues to give us that sense of optimism that, that those, those standard practices that, in my opinion, have not changed for the last 50 years, um, funding, um, boards of education, the politics that are involved. Every time I see a parent and teacher come together, work together, the forum that we have created gives me that sense of optimism that ultimately these issues that we're talking about can ultimately be, ultimately change. So that was so good. Let me comment on when it. So when you're looking at a charter school, they're funded a little different. They do, if it's an open enrollment charter, they will receive uh, state funding. And they will receive federal funding because they have to do the federal guidelines. Now, they have a different structure in the way they do to do things in a charter in a charter school. Because I've worked for the largest charter school here in Texas, and I worked for I was a, a regional superintendent, and I was ex executive director at a, a, a ISD. But when it comes to the, let's say the school like you're at right now, Mr. Drone, Dr. Drone, you guys have federal funding for some after school programs. However that money is capped. That money is capped and it's limited to this, this kid have to hit, hit this parameter and hit me these uh, categories in order to be classified as this, in order to be, to take place in this after hour program. So public schools don't have the funding and that's what we're talking about underfunding to have these parent nights every month, which they should. I would love for them to have it, but they can't, they don't have the funding for it. But not only that, uh, with all, the, with all the accountability in our public school systems, teachers are now, and look at, I think you can look at Houston ISD, teachers are now saying, if you want me here after school, you have to pay me overtime. And if the funding is, funding is not there to begin with, it's not going to be there to pay overtime to be at all those events. Okay, okay, okay. So, so let's, let's, let's recap here. Let's, let's come back, let's come back, let's come back. 
the, the topic for tonight is politicizing education and the funding impact. Now, we are definitely on that on that topic, uh, but the panelists have gone out uh, into the deep waters. So I'm, I'm going to bring us back a little bit and kind of explain again why this is so important because literacy levels in different governments from the one from the developed countries we'll say it that way the developed countries are known for high literacy rates high levels of employment which then adds to that country's gdp which also adds to or it improves the citizen's life expectancy so what i'm saying is people that are educated live longer People that are educated get better jobs. People that are educated have more opportunities. So, Buddy Thornton, Postal Change Agent Pro, why, well my question for you is, why does public funding of education benefit economic growth? What's your thoughts? Well, I think it's a leadoff uh, based on everything that Larry has said and everything that uh, has been brought up by Mr. Robinson. If you don't understand that by focusing on the cutbacks and focusing on trying to line item education and looking at it as just a base necessity as opposed to one of the biggest growth vehicles in the economy, you're looking at it from the wrong perspective. Every dollar invested in the bottom 20% would remove dollars out of the economic cost of having people on welfare. Every person who is made into a more functional, productive adult coming out of school adds net positive to the economy. They're not a drain on the economy. And a lot of people say, okay, but they have to earn that right. And my question is no. We have to create an equitable situation where even the bottom 20% can grow hope if the public funding is visibly uh, at a disadvantage and puts them at a physical disadvantage, they are going to have a psychological collapse in their hope chest. And I don't, I say that literally, when they lose hope that they're actually going to be a functional, fully functional adult, they start looking for ways to game the system and become part of the economic cost of the economy. I talk to people all the time in the disadvantaged populations here in Arizona, and they all tell me the same thing. They don't want to be where they are. The system placated their position by refusing to fund and provide proper educational space, paths to success, growth-minded uh, mindset in the school systems. I mean, even the, the superintendent of education in the state of Arizona right now says there will be no SEL, there will be no DEI, there will be nothing but core classes taught until we can exceed the uh, the core requirements for all the students. And the, the fail rate, the dropout rate is approaching 35%. And the problem with that is if you cannot get functional adults out of the public school you cannot just say the public fools or schools are broken you have to say that the administration of based on the lack of funding 
is what has broken the public school system. I'm a product of the public school system. I have a doctorate. I have a doctoral level education. And I earned every bit of that. But I was always in a situation where I knew I had to earn it because the school system wasn't going to give it to me. And I did not have the ability to go to a private school when I grew up in a very small Texas, small ranch town. So when I look at public funding of education, I just think, okay, if you would just invest $1, the benefit would be at least 3 to $4 back to the economy for every dollar invested per year of each one of these successful students' journey through life. In my book four, I, I challenge parents, teachers, and caregivers about one thing. Answer the question, what is your only job with kids? What's your only job? And there's really only one answer. Everyone gives a million answers. The only answer is you are charged with growing and developing a fully functional adult who can benefit society and if you can't do that as a parent, teacher, or caregiver, you are failing the student, and therefore you are failing society. And that's why public funding has to go up, to give them the tools to leverage the economic base in the school, to have the proper teachers and to have the proper hope environment so these kids can succeed, and the cost on society goes down, not up. Ooh, you preaching, brother. All right, the panel is open. If this does not turn around, what predicament, what situation will this society be in when you guys are old? I got a question for you, Dr. Jones. Let's say myself and two other astute people, doesn't matter race, doesn't matter gender. We sat down and we came and we said, all right, Dr. Drone, this is how much you are worth a year. We don't know you. We haven't met you. But we decide this is how much you, you are worth a year. Now, chances are we're going to gravely undervalue you. And this is what we do every year to our education. Some people somewhere who don't know our children, don't know the children, and their children probably attend private schools, decide that $10,000 a year per kid is enough to educate a child or in Oklahoma, $4,300 a year is enough to educate a child. When you have that kind of thinking, that kind of mindset, you've already limited our children, you limited the education system, you, you, limited, limit, you have limited the education institution that they are going to, because in your mind, you said $10,000 is enough, I'm not giving them a penny more. And now you're limited by the teachers you can hire. So the whole thought of the whole funding of education is wrong. I remember there was a time, I remember this, that there was a time when teachers were on the same level as, as lawyers. They were on the same level as, as doctors, as, as bankers. And they were considered to be professionals. Professionals. What happened? What happened to the profession, the esteemed profession of school teaching? What happened? The panel's still open. Everybody's afraid of that. There is, I don't think anything happened with the, the, pre, the prestigiousness of being a teacher. 
I think it's teaching. When you have to deal with all the political issues, when you have to deal with all the discipline issues, when you have to deal with some of the restraints that's placed on that job now, the prestige is gone from having the job, not being a teacher. It's what you have to encounter during the job, which now has become more of a headache. Like what he said, if you have a superintendent who says, I'm not dealing with SCL or S, you know, social emotional components for students, for, for teachers, why do you want to do the job? Because that job comes with stress. And I would say also that, um, you know, with that stress comes some of the lack of urgency. I really appreciate what, uh, what um, Dr. Davis has shared and his, and his insight. And, and I think it was spot on, right on. But there is, there does seem to be sort of a lack of urgency, whether urgency in terms of recognizing the overall failures. If there's not the consistent, adequate funding that's necessary, those resources, tangible resources that's needed in the schools, what you're ultimately going to end up with are another generation of students who don't have access to the resources that they need in order to become effective citizens, adults, contributing adults to the society. I would um, ask the question, what happened? Why isn't that urgency still there? And secondly, I would also ask the same thing. The second question is, is this sort of, sort of a consistent uh, repetition of how the funding has been, again, for the last 25, 50 years? I don't really recall a time where there's really been adequate funding for public schools. Perhaps I'm wrong. See, now you know. Now you're exactly. Go ahead. ahead. No, he's exactly right. But I think so. And I want to compare our system to Finland, which is the number one education system in the world, right? They pay their teachers like doctors and lawyers, but they also make them go to professional development like doctors and lawyers. And they don't have a high turnover rate of teachers leaving. They have a higher rate of them getting rid of teachers who don't meet the qualifications because they don't want to put in the work. When we started paying teachers more, they didn't increase the student FTE. They left it the same. So now you're paying teachers more, but you have to have fewer teachers on the campus. That's counterproductive. I'm going to pay you more, but now I'm going to increase your class size. And we know historically the students who are lower achieving, lower achievers need the smaller class sizes. But no, we want to put 31 kids in a classroom, 28 kids in a classroom, and a teacher who's struggling with discipline, behavior, trying to get a lesson plan written, trying to get break students up into small groups that can do station learning and, and learn more, but they can't afford to give them an aid and they won't add more teachers because we have staffing models and that staffing model exists because of pay rate and pay rate exists because they're trying to keep teachers. So they say, we'll give you the money, but we're gonna take some teachers from you. So you give with one hand, and take away with the other. Ooh, that's so good. You know what? I, I almost, if I had a subtopic for tonight, it'll be polarizing education and the funding impact. Uh, panel is open. The panel is so open. Let me let me throw this question out there. How how did what number did COVID nineteen play on politicizing education? How did COVID nineteen affect, in other words? 
politicizing education, especially with our public schools. How did COVID-19 affect the politics of education? And what did it uncover that had been hidden in plain sight? The panel's open. What's your thoughts? Uh, okay. Uh, because I'm not in the system. I don't care if I make some people mad here. Uh, the politics said we have to keep the schools open because we don't want the kids to fall behind. There were different groups within the school systems, mostly from the position of relationships, safety, and health. We need to allow everyone in mass, as Dr. Larry has been very, very apropos to say, everyone was caught up in the same storm. So nobody's really behind. Everybody will just be held in place. So the politics said, force the teachers to teach, force the kids to be in school. Of course, we know all about the mask mandate debacle that uh, will never be actually resolved. We do know that the politics said, we don't want to be behind when there was no reality statement ever made. The reality statement was, the entire world is on a standstill. It's not about being behind because behind was a perception. It was not a reality. Nobody was behind because everybody was in the exact same place and not moving forward. Why couldn't we focus on the health and safety and worry about any quote unquote perception of catch up after the fact, but that's not what happened politically. And that has severely divided the country. I don't know if you remember this, but, in 2021, when we came back to school, we didn't take, and this is Texas, we hadn't taken any state assessments in 2020. In November of 2021, I'm, going, I'm sorry, November of 2020, when we first came back, the state released data saying that minority students had dropped 32% in math, uh, 46% in reading. Where did this data come from? Because we hadn't given any assessments we hadn't done any benchmarks. We hadn't done anything to calculate that data. So we were working under a false narrative, just a narrative just from that perspective. Here's data, and everybody jumped on it. And then we had this House Bill 4545, which said if any ninth grader or eighth grader or sixth grader failed a certain course, they had to get 30 hours of mentoring a semester but they didn't give them funding to tutor those kids after school. So again, you give with one hand, but you take away with the other. Wow. Listen, I'm just, I'm just hosting this podcast. I'm just facilitating. And uh, I'm hearing some dynamite uh, rebuttals and conversations. Who's next? Who's next? Dr. Larry, did you just hear Isaiah uh, attaching all of his armor so that he doesn't get burned out of this? <laughs> I did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Here, here's the reality. You know, people can call a pig a pig. You throw a little bit of lipstick on it and you want to date it, okay? The bottom line is education is flawed because the politicians can invent numbers, use hyperbole, and they can use their uh, public soapbox to get up and say, well, this is the reality and this is the reality. And the, the average person across this country does not have the education or the ability to do the research on those numbers and dr larry is absolutely correct i run into a minimum of 30 percent of data that comes through my organization 
that has never been vetted and has no source. What do I, what do you think I do with that data? It goes in the ash heap. I don't consider it. It's not part of the narrative. Has that happened in the education system? Absolutely not. Dr. Larry is absolutely correct. They take the flawed data. They don't care what the source was. It could just be some politician's head. And they're going, yep, oh, yep, that has to be the way it is because, well, that's the group and that's the people and this is what they did and this is what they can't do. So, yeah, those numbers have to be right. It's all based on bias. It's all based on a preconceived notion that we can control the narrative so that we can prop up the right people and we can hold the other people down. And it's usually the disadvantaged groups, black, brown, and the poor white, who get smashed by these non-vettable statistics. It's just commonplace. It will always be commonplace because not enough people understand how to do their own research and realize whether something is a false narrative or if it's true. All right, so so let's let us go here. So basically, in a nutshell, meeting the students' needs is based on relationships and, and those critical hurdles that you've been you've been hearing tonight that's been discussed. They are influencing schools, whether it's positively or negative, but they're influencing schools and they're influencing schools' abilities. They're influencing shared ideas. They're influencing the way people connect. Culture is being affected by this, this topic. School leadership is being affected by this topic. And so what are the best practices to use as school leaders, as community leaders, to navigate around topics like this in a way that we help give resources to our students. Because at the end of the day, no matter what chaotic situation we are faced with, we still have to feed our students. How are we gonna feed our students through the chaos? That's my question. What's your thoughts? Uh, no, go ahead, Mr. Dr. Robinson. I want to hear you anyway. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. What, what, what I have found in the importance of relationships is really starting with an acknowledgement of the difficult task that we have before us. And again, with parents and teachers, these schools have been open and welcoming to bring us on board. These are schools that recognize the importance of sustaining, developing and sustaining that relationship beyond what typically the schools have had in place. Um, you know, the flyers that have gone out to parents, the outreach to homes, the um, celebration of students' first day coming into school, all of the banners, all of the emails that are, that are sent out, all of the important marketing is important. It goes without, goes without saying. But these schools have also recognized that the strength comes from those relationships. And these schools have taken steps to doing things a little bit differently, um, being more... Um, these schools are, have become more um, cutting edge, if you will, making it clear to these parents that you are expected to be involved. 
and through Together for Success, this model that we have creates an opportunity for you to be involved. And so part of our success has come from the baseline recognizing that it's not easy, it's really difficult. The system has been in place, frankly, it really has not changed, even with the best efforts of many of these schools to be creative, to be innovative. Um, one of the panelists made a great point about this new school that was built in, in I think it was Allen, um, Texas it was, and uh, it was being billed as having you know high-speed internet, and, and now it's has Wi-Fi and it's losing, the school's losing money. I think, the, I think that what gets lost in the bigger perspective is the strength and the foundation that comes from relationships, that comes from communication, that comes from consistent contact, that comes from reducing those barriers, seeing parents and teachers not as separate people, but more with shared values, shared goals, shared strengths and building upon that to develop that consistent relationship throughout that school um, quarter, through that marking period, through you know the holidays, through graduation, and beyond that, that level of consistency. So I will say that it's important. We found our success by just being as human, as straightforward, and recognizing that the job and the task that we have for us in educating these children, that's not an easy one. However, we can do that by working together, communicating together, shedding those barriers, and realizing the success. All right, so Dr. Drone, shameless plug in three, two, one. In my book, Working With Our 4D Students, right? That's one of the things I talk about, I call it, I call it BRACE. You know, that uh, beliefs, relationships, attitude, culture and climate, engagement and environment, right? If we would spend, if our school system would allow teachers to spend, I want to say three weeks, 15 days on building that classroom culture, that campus culture, instead of just diving into a lesson, they would actually create a system where we pour kids into something that's established something that's structured, something that they can rely on, they can count on. It's going to be this way all the time. But when we don't give them that time, what you have is you have a series of individual schoolhouses inside of a school building because every teacher functions differently and students don't know what to expect from one classroom to the next. If we can build those relationships, and that's important because we know that kids come to school when they're known by their teachers, engaged in their work, and connected to the school. All three of those are relationships. If we can create those relationships with our students and then foster in that partnership with our parents, oh, it'll be a beautiful thing. But we don't give our teachers the time, and we have time. In an 18-week semester, I guarantee you we teach six weeks of fluff. Dangerous. you just dangerous. Okay, let me, let me ask this question, because... Man, Mr. Robinson, I'm, I'm coming your way, but let me throw this question out there because I know, uh, you, you know, I know the panel tonight is going to knock this out the park. The question is this: So, at what point did the United States have it right? 
when when did they have education when did they facilitate education correctly when the panel's open it's never it's never been we we still have the same education system from 1865 and that system was predicated on educating wealthy european whites not blacks not hispanics not asians not minority not the poor so we can't we have we have to we need to sh look at the system and revamp it if that means revamp elementary this year middle school next year and high school the year after that then do that but we have to cut our losses and say the system as it is now is not built to educate our children and that's why we have an achievement gap statistically they're saying that public schools in america are ranked 41 in the world but our college schools our universities are top five they're top five you know what's funny you know what's funny that's because the rest of the world judges math and science and we judge math and english we're not comparing an apple to an apple incredible uh mr robson let me let me go in, in your direction now as you speak i i hear your your vernacular and and i i hear your your talent and your and and i can hear your work ethic um you are an educated man my question to you is what challenges did you face in school as as a black and brown student in your community internally and externally that's my question yeah I, there are i think with both um as an african-american male um being raised by a single mother who by the way had to work two jobs just to be able to provide for the five of us so needless to say it was quite a challenge for all of us um, however you know i as a black man never lost sight of my dreams and what it was that i felt that i could do and i wanted to do despite those limitations of barriers and on a personal first-hand note i do want to share with you as a um, associate professor of psychology what motivated me to begin to think outside the box if you will the experience that just outreached me as a professor in a community college that was the faculty was primarily white and it would always bring a smile to my face and my you know black and brown students walked into my class and saw an african-american male behind the lectern it was always a pleasure to see the look on their face and their eyes light up but i can tell you firsthand the catalyst behind the book that i have written and published and the program that i've developed together for success in large part was experiencing firsthand these students right out of high school being ill prepared to manage or even get passing grades in entry level i'm not talking 
advanced level, entry-level courses, and it grieved me to no end. And it was a clear indication of how these students had been failed, in my opinion, in the public schools. I'm sure they graduated. They had big smiles on their faces, and they were happy to be in my class, but they lacked the basic fundamental skills, problem-solving skills, critical thinking skills that was necessary in order for them to be able to matriculate. And it really frustrated me. And it pointed me in the direction that I needed to be pointed into, which was basically that the, that the system failed them and that somehow these parents needed to be galvanized and needed to be more engaged and more involved and to understand that without your involvement, you know, your students, your kids are left at their at the fate of, in my opinion, a you know, a non black or brown college professor who would basically, in my opinion, just fail them quickly. Um, stamping out and stamping out the flame of inspiration of these young students who are happy to be in a community college. And I would see them over and over be failed and pushed on and justified basically by saying that, well, they're just not prepared and we're not going to pass them through. So it really is, has been the catalyst behind my motivation both as a, you know, a beneficiary of public schools, but also seeing firsthand as a professor that, yeah, there's more that needs to be done here. I'm, if I'm not part of the solution, I'm part of the problem. And it's important for me to set about identifying creative ways to increase parent involvement. And, and I'm happy to say that um, we continue to experience ongoing success with, with our model. Incredible. Uh, really quick before uh, we let you go, Ms. Robson, please uh, let the listening audience know how they can purchase your book. It's available on Amazon. The title is Together for Success, the Defensive Guide on How to Increase Parent Involvement in Your School. Um, we have a blog um, that information you can also find in my LinkedIn account, Eric Robinson. And we have an online course as well um, through Thinkific platform, um, Boosting Parent Involvement, a three-part online course. Our services are available. You're welcome to reach out to me. Um, I'm happy to work in all of your schools, by the way, and to bring the success that we've had here in the Northeast um, to Texas and Arizona and parts of uh, of the Southwest. Well, we're glad to have you. Glad to have you. Well, you know, we about to, wow, we're out of time. We're about to wrap things up. What are the takeaways for tonight? Who wants to go first? Okay, Dr. Larry Davis, why don't you go first? Okay, go ahead, go ahead. I will go. I, I, guess, <laughs> I guess Mr. Robinson shut it down. Nobody wants to pick the mic up after that, right? Wow. <laughs> That's pretty so, powerful you know, stuff. Pretty powerful stuff. Yeah. I, my takeaway is simply this. I, 
uh, I think 10 years ago, I hit the stage where I was like, I don't want to talk about it if, I, if we can't do anything about it. And our education system is one of those things that if you ask anybody if something's wrong, everybody in the room will raise their hand. If you ask them, can they point out three things that's wrong, everyone will raise their hand. If you ask them, would you like to be part of the solution, every hand will go down. We have to get to a point where we're through talking about it and we're more active about doing things about it. That's my takeaway. I, I have to mirror that. And, you know, we have kind of a funny saying that uh, if you ask 12 people uh, what the problems are in a institution like a school, you're going to get 36 different answers depending on what time of day and how the weather is. The problem is everybody knows the system is flawed, but humanity is imperfect. What we have to strive for is, can we make tomorrow better than today? And today is not necessarily better than yesterday. And why is that? Because nobody, nobody will invest in the, the solution. The problem with that, when you ask about the politicization, is very simple. If you solve the problem, politics, politicians and the parties lose their talking point. If there's no real issue somewhere, if there's no perception of no real issue somewhere, how do they get reelected? They have to sustain a problem so that they can have talking points. And that leads us to a much different conversation. A politician's job is just to get reelected. It's not to govern. And they prove that over and over again, every election cycle, they don't govern. They bicker amongst themselves. What public problem have they fixed in my lifetime? And I am almost 70 years old. Mr. Robson, take us home. Yeah, I will say, yeah, I will say um, my, my takeaway, uh, the politics is really just a, a, a thread and fabric of our larger, broader society. I think that we would be remiss to assume that the, the politicization does not exist in the school system. Sad but true. These are just some of the realities. I'll also say, however, to not underestimate, let us not lose sight of both the hope and the optimism of the power of parent involvement. Why? We've always wanted to be involved beyond parent and teacher um, conferences, annual, biannual parent teacher conferences, um, PTOs and PTAs. We've always wanted to be involved. It just has not been the forum that has existed. Absent of that forum, then we are left to what we know, which is basically I'm going to give my child to the school send him or her off to school and expect there to be positive outcomes with little in the way of input and involvement on the part of the parent. So it's not that they haven't really wanted to be involved. The forum just did not exist. And so let us not lose sight of that and let us not underestimate that power, the ability of parents and teachers Bridging those gaps, working together on behalf of students. That's really, in my view, where the power lies. 
funding of great um, increase in the funding is important, but it still is is not as powerful or substantive or sustaining as that relationship that exists between that parent and that teacher. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Ooh wee! This was another impactful night. An impact education leadership. This is episode one hundred ninety four. Impact of educational leadership podcast.